morning and happy Sabbath to all. Our scripture reading is book of Exodus chapter 2 verse 15. Chapter 2 verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Amen. Such an inspiring verse, huh? You know, you guys totally throw me off when people like the dyes switch from over there. I know where your seats are. I see you week after week, and you totally throw it off. I think it's good for you. It's good for the seats to change a little bit, too, you know. They just, you know. Um, you know anyways, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> but it's good seeing you all. Um, before we start, I don't like to call people out, but I'm going to say that I know at least one person today, it's their, it's their birthday, and I'm not going to say their name because they might be shy, but it might rhyme with Cable, their first name, and their last name might rhyme with Jelly. So Cable Jelly, it is their birthday today. Um, would it be okay if we sang happy birthday? All right. Ready? Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear. Oh, Mabel. <laughs> Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Right. How old? Oh, never mind. Okay. She said 20. We, we discussed it. She's 20. Um, now you know what song that I sing, so sing with me. Oh, come let us adore him. Oh, come let us adore him. Oh, come let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the power of your salvation. We thank you for Mabel. We thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit. May he fill us. May he transform our lives and the lives around us. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So if you do not remember or if you were not here you were not here last week, we are starting a series, which we did last week, in the life of Moses. Now, I don't know if you realize this, and the reason behind this is Moses is, I'm going to make sort of a, a bold statement here, Moses is the key figure within the Abrahamic religions. Do you know within Islam, the name of Moses is written more in the Quran than Muhammad? Moses is central 
to what we believe as Judeo-Christians. So if we are going to have any clout with Islam, with Judaism, we need to know Moses. I don't know, this is my opinion. I actually think at times, and I was mentioning this to somebody else, I think the challenge of why we haven't been more effective in reaching people in Judaism and Islam is because we have replaced Moses with Paul. We have said the foundation of what we believe is Jesus through Paul, but all Paul was doing was, hey, go back to Moses. Study Moses. And we have actually said Paul's epistles are higher than the Torah. These letters written to specific churches are of higher importance than the Torah, than the law. And I think people of other faiths have said, you lost me right there. If you do that, you lose me. So we are studying through Moses. Now, the title of this is Cast Out, Moses' Backfired Act. And you guys will know this story very quickly. Now, I want to show you a picture. And can anybody tell me through the, from this picture who this man is? Huh? Fred Astaire? No. Nobody? I know it looks like a young Joe Sedora because he is Italian. And I don't know if their characters are the same. But this Italian young man is, if you go to the next slide, is a name called Charles Ponzi. Joe, I'm assuming you're not the same. There is actually a scheme named after him, the Ponzi scheme. Now, he was not the inventor of the Ponzi scheme. He was not the best at the Ponzi scheme. But it was named after him. And if you know his story a little bit, and I had to read a little bit on it, even though I knew his name, is this young man throughout the U.S. and Canada, even though he was born in Italy, promised his clients, so there were investments made through him, he promised a 50% profit within 45 days. Now, Tom, you're a financial advisor. Is that something you advise within 45 days to get 50% back on your investment? All right, he wouldn't still be a financial advisor. Now, here's the thing. He actually said 50% in 45 days, but if you can wait a whole 90 days, you'll get 100% of that back. Um, he said that he was buying discounted postal reply coupons in other countries and redeeming them at the face value in the United States as a form of arbitrage. In reality, Ponzi was paying earlier investors, he was rewarding his earlier investors with his new investors' money. So you get more investors and you pay them, so they say, oh, this is a good thing, right? I'm making money, hand over fist. The problem is, correct me if I'm wrong, Tom, this isn't legal, is it? Okay, it is not legal. And so he was imprisoned for this. 
Now, the thing is, is there's a trap here. And if you do the next line there, the trap is that we would love to get rich quick. Come on. You're lying if you would not, if you would not like another source of income to be coming into your bank account. I mean, I don't want to say all, but most people would love to have another stream of income coming in. And there are things out there all the time. This is why Bernie Madoff made off with so much money because of this. Have you ever gotten an email from a Nigerian prince that said, if you can pay me $2,000 so that it will release my funds, I can give you so much money. Just ask David Dye. No, <laughs> just joke. He hasn't written, to the, written back to the Nigerian prince, but you know that that happens. And the thing is, is they keep emailing because somebody has fallen for it. Somebody has fallen for it. They're not doing it if it doesn't work. It works. If it only works one out of 100 times, they're conning people out of money. You just write thousands of emails. And it's working. Because it's not their fault as much as it's our fault because we want to get rich quicker. Do you know... Uh, I, I was talking to, there's Wendy, you know, the girl that was, has been attending, and she's an intern at Amita, and she had to, she had to head off to see a, a relative. But we were discussing money uh, earlier this morning, and I told her one of the greatest books ever given to me, outside of Scripture and, like, Desire of Ages, was my first year of ministry. My first year of ministry, one of my parishioners said, I want you to have this. And it was a book called The Total Money Makeover by Dave Ramsey. At that time, I was making $1,400 a month. Okay, that's not much. All right, kids, you probably, oh, wow, $1,400 a month, that's a lot. It's not much. I was making $1,400 a month. I had $60,000 in student loans. I had some credit card debt. And I was sort of just like, how can I just postpone paying that off while I'm working, making $1,400 a month? Well, I read this, and I was inspired. I was, the, the one thing that I was really inspired about was the snowball. You guys remember that? If you've read the book, the snowball, I don't know if it's called the snowball effect or whatever you call it, but, but, or whatever he calls it, but he says, pay off your smallest amount. Pay off your smallest amount, but when you pay off that smallest amount of debt, don't stop paying that, that amount, whatever it is. If it's 30 bucks a month or whatever that is, apply it to your next smallest amount of debt, and it will pay off quicker. And then when you're done with those, apply it to the next smallest amount, and eventually you'll be done. Now, Anna and I have been, and this is glory to the Lord, and, and it's also thankfulness to the, to the people that gave me that book. Anna and I have pretty much been one income since Madison's uh, been born. Now, she's worked, like, part-time jobs. When we were in Arlington for two years, she worked, and we were making 200 a month through her. Okay, that's sort of insignificant. I mean, it, you're not insignificant. The 200 bucks a month basically helped pay for 
Madison's bill. So it's not insignificant, but you know in the scheme of things you can't live off of $200 a month. But the Lord has helped us over being one income from to pay off our student loans, well, mine mostly, actually all of it, <laughs> uh, pay off all of the $60,000 under 10 years, to build a savings up, to have a retirement and even have a, a little bit of investment. And this is glory to the Lord. Now I'm preaching to you young kids. Don't overspend. Don't spend more than you are getting in. All right? When I was in Texas, when I first arrived in Texas, they had all the new pastors, uh, like an orientation, not just new pastors in ministry, but if they, you were new to Texas. They would have you come in, and most of them were younger, you know, in their 20s and 30s, and they would have you come in, and you would do some orientation. And one of the orientation meetings, they had us all put in, write down, our debt. But the debt was not, they said, we want you to exclude if you have mortgage debt because most people have mortgage debt. So we want to see your debt outside of mortgage. So car payments, credit card, student loans. Now, ours was probably about 20000 at that time. Um, we were getting really close, maybe even 15000 And we all wrote it down. And there were about 25 of us, and they came back with an average. They tallied them, you know, about 15 minutes later, they come back and they said, here is your average. You are average as a group at $77,000 in debt. $77,000 in debt. And I was blown away because I had $20,000. So that means if we're at average of $77,000, I'm at twenty. dollars somebody's higher to bring that average up. There were people with $150,000 of debt in this pastoral group. And do you think that they are uncommon to American society? No. Do you know what one of the problems that was brought up to, to me about 15 years ago is? Here's your challenge. Is my generation, so I'm still Generation X, my generation had parents that bought houses. Now, where I'm from, $250,000 is a lot of money. Here, you're buying a garage. But where they're from, it was at that time when I was in high school, $250,000. Um, my parents bought their most recent house in the 90s for $210,000. It's a decent house. My generation wants to live in that kind of house right after college. So we will forego the process of build, getting a small house, 10 years later getting another one a little bit bigger than getting another one, which you know that especially your parents did that. Actually, some of your parents paid full for their house. They paid cash. At least my parents' time, they had to have at least 20% down. Now you can, actually, during the first decade of the 2000s, you could put no money down and get a house. No money down. You don't have any money to put down. All you have to pay are closing costs. 
and you could get a house. But the thing is, is I, I, I do want to share this. Sorry, I've be, sort of belabored the point. But the problem is that if you go, and I'm going to make it more in, in our terms here. If you go for, for a $500,000 house, which, what does that get in Downers Grove? A decent house, right? Maybe middle of the road. Do you know how much you'll pay in interest alone at a 4.5% interest rate? $412,000. On a $500,000 house, you're going to pay $412,000 in interest. So over $900,000 for a $500,000 house if you pay regularly for 30 years. But if you do it 300 for 10 years, then 400 for 10 years, and then 500 for 10 years, you would spend about $100,000 less over those 30 years. Now, I know $100,000 might not seem like that much to you, and it's over 30 years, but $100,000 is a lot of money to me. I would love to save $100,000 over 30 years. Does your yield, do you, the yield that you're, what you invest, I mean, the, for $100,000 over 30 years is a good amount, right? You could do that. By, going, by buying a $300,000 for 10 years to $400,000 the next 10 years to $500,000, and you still end up in the $500,000 after 20 years, but you'd save $100,000. Isn't that insane? But we don't want that. We want the $500,000 house now. And we're losing $100,000 in the process. Do you know that there's, I, I was going to share another article, but just for time purposes, I'm not going to share that. But I want to share this name with you. This guy's name is Dr. Leon James. And this Leon James actually is a professor of psychology at the, of the University of Hawaii. And he specifically concentrates on driving psychology. And the reason he got into this, he was inspired, is because he realized his driving was becoming more and more aggressive. And he was becoming more and more impatient. So he said, I'm going to focus on this. And he wrote some things like this. He said, a lifelong of unrecognized habit of bad driving affects the individual intellectually, morally, and spiritually. Hmm. He says, the capacity of objectivity and rational thinking is reduced while extreme emotions of impatience, frustration, and aggression are turned loose within our minds. An otherwise nice person turns into a driving demon whose thoughts and feelings, if seen on screen, would horrify them and their friends. He says, when we drive, many of us change. Because we are impatient. We want what we want, and we don't want it in 10 minutes. We want it now. We want it yesterday. That's why Amazon has thrived on two-day shipping. But they now have same-day shipping. I wish they had yesterday shipping, because that's when I needed it. Now, he was actually one of his quotes. He was quoting one of his... Uh, study, patients, whatever you call them. And, and this person said, I tailgate and then I become impatient. 
I quickly close the gap. I feel like hitting them, killing them, sweeping them off the road, giving them a piece of my mind, punish them, teach them a lesson, show them I'm no pushover, and so on. Do you believe it happens? You know it does because it happened in you. Come on. We've all been impatient. Oh, yeah. We've had this conversation. Here's the thing, and this is my definition. Here's the challenge with impatience. Impatience, go to the next slide. And you can go to the the definition. And my definition is this. Impatience is thinking that our plans, my plans, are more important than everybody else's. Even God's. When I think I need to get there quicker than everybody else on the road, I believe that my agenda is most important. That's why I'm going that fast. So get out of my way. When they're thinking the same thing. And nobody's going to win when everybody is impatient. And that's why you have things called road rage. Where people are being shot Because of this, it is affecting our society. Now, we're finally getting to the text. I want you to go to the text. It's in Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. And it's up there on the screen, maybe just a slight bit different than right here in my text. But it says this. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and glancing this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw the saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked, one, he asked the one who was in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian where he sat down by a well. Now, I don't know how many of you believe that Moses did something right. But I do not believe he did something right. But we, we will assume maybe it was possibly right in a second, just, so, just for, for assumption's sake. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Moses had also grown in favor with man and God. Actually, if you read, there's a book called Patriarchs and Prophets. It says this. At the court of Pharaoh, Moses received the highest civil and military training. The monarch had determined to make his adopted grandson his successor on the throne. And the youth was educated for his high station. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in deeds and work. 
Later on, it says this, Moses was fitted to take preeminence among the great of the earth, to shine in the courts of the most glorious kingdom, to sway the scepter of its power. His intellectual, intellectual greatness diminishes him, oh, dis, not diminishes, distinguishes him, above the great men of all ages. As a historian, poet, philosopher, general of armies, as legislator, he stands without a peer. He was remarked, amongst his own Egyptians as somebody who is of excellent character. He was going to be the next Pharaoh. He was great not only amongst the Hebrews, but more against, amongst the Egyptians. But he decided to take things in his own hands because that's what we do. By the way, just a side note, a lot of times, don't we think in ministry, like we sort of rank how effective we can be in ministry, and we do it with education. Who, whoever's the highest educated or the, the highest rank, we say they're the, mo the most qualified. I, I've seen it on, on boards you know, especially, it, it, I do find it a little bit funny on school boards at times, just at times, that uh, where we'll have, like, physicians, and nothing against physicians. You know, love physicians. I love the medical uh, industry. My parents are medical. But, but where I'll see physicians on a school board, and they haven't really invested any time in researching about education, but... People think, well, they're doctors. They've got to be the most qualified. Now, if any of you are teachers, you know that that's not always true. Uh, we actually had that where I was before, and we changed it because we had some teachers that weren't working at that school that became part of the board, and the school started to grow. Oh, amazing. We have teachers running our education systems, and it's growing. I'm sure Moses felt, I'm qualified. I'm going to be the next Pharaoh. I will take over. Now, I don't know if you know this, but it is believed that Moses was prophesied about by Jews and Christians. Actually, going back to that Patriarchs and Prophets, it says this, The elders of Israel were taught by angels that the time for their deliverance was near, and that Moses was the man whom God would employ to accomplish his work. They knew. Angels, angels instructed Moses also that Jehovah had chosen him to break the bondage of the people. So can you imagine that seed's already in there? I'm the guy. And they know it too. Actually, it wasn't even just them. Even in the Jewish encyclopedia, it says this. It says, if I can find it, right here. The birth of Moses as the liberator of the people of Israel was foretold to Pharaoh by his soothsayers. By the way, if angels knew it and they were telling Israelites, then Satan knew it and Satan's agents. So he said, yeah, come on. Just like with Jesus. Hey, there's somebody coming up. You might want to take notice of this. In consequence of which he issued the cruel command to cast all the male children into the river. Later on, Miriam foretold her father, 
Amram that a son would be born to him who would liberate Israel from the yoke of Egypt. So also the Egyptians had been foretold. There's a deliverer coming. Throw all the boys in the river. Okay. And the writings of the Jewish writings say when he was actually placed in the river, remember in the basket, then they could no longer see in the stars that they were, they said, okay, it's done. We don't have to throw any more babies. Remember, that's when the, the thing ends. The, the command to throw them, he's like, okay, we're done. We're not going to throw any more babies in. He was prophesied about. He thought he was the one. Actually, God said, you're the one. So he said, one day as he's walking out, okay, it's my chance. I hate this. What my, what, what my people are going through because of the Egyptians. So he goes up. He kills somebody, and he buries him in the sand. There's a right thing, and I'm not saying what he did was right, but sometimes the right thing happens at the wrong time. Sometimes our timing, now I think he did the wrong thing at the, and there was no right time for that, But what Moses did, even if it was right, was the wrong timing. And remember, again, I said that it's not because he was high-ranked or highly educated that he was qualified to do this. God qualifies us, right? God qualifies us. That's why you read about history of the Middle Ages that when some of the Christians were imprisoned, Eight-year-old children were preaching the gospel in sometimes greater power because God had qualified them. The Spirit is what qualifies us to preach in power. I heard one amen. The Spirit qualifies us. It is not who I am. It is not what my talents are. Actually, in Deuteronomy 7, it says this when he's talking to Israel. The Lord did not set his affection on you or choose you because you were more numerous than other people's, because you were tiny. You were the fewest. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept an oath and swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of the Pharaoh of the king of Egypt. Spiritual gifts, here's a nugget, spiritual gifts are not talents. It is not what you are born with that makes you qualified. I'm not saying those are bad. And I'm not saying education is bad. They do help. But spiritual gifts, the important part of spiritual gifts is the first word. Spiritual. If you are not empowered by the Spirit, then you have no gift. There is no just gift. You might have some talents. But spiritual gifts are what, it, what qualify us. Right time, uh, right thing, wrong time. Do you guys, anybody know who Joshua Harris is? Do you remember that name? You might. It sounds familiar, some of you younger folk. There was a guy, a young Christian, who wrote about 15 years ago, I believe it was, maybe even longer. He wrote the book called I've Kissed Dating Goodbye. Do you remember that book when that came out? There was an uproar. He said, 
Basically, his premise was, I am not going to date until basically marriage. That I have kissed dating goodbye. That's it. There will be no physical contact. There will be nothing. I'm not going to even hold hands. I mean, he was going to, I mean, he was definitely leaning that way. And he says, so he wrote this book. And there were people like, well, I don't know if I believe in this. But I saw his principles that he was saying. He's quoted once of saying this. The right thing at the wrong time is a wrong thing. I want, to, I want to read that again. The right thing at the wrong time is a wrong thing. And I agree. You know what he's talking about? Physical intimacy. He's saying a right thing is physical intimacy. I know we don't like to in our culture talk about, and I'll say physical intimacy. The word is sex. Sex is good. No Amen. Wait, wait, wait. Sex is great. It is God-given. Do you understand that? This is God-given. Now, some of you might be blushing through this, which hopefully you are not, but it's because our society has changed what is beautiful within its context into something that is dirty. But sex is great, and that is biblical. But outside of its context, it can do damage. That's why he says within your covenant, this is the most beautiful thing. This is the one thing, the one thing that you can share with you and your partner. Your spouse, this is the one thing, the the closest of intimacy. But at the wrong time, it can do tons of damage. And so that he makes that quote. But it happens because we're impatient. We want to happen on our time. We get so excited. It's like, a, it's like Christmas. And I want to open this gift before Christmas. And God says, no, no, no. The present's good, but it's at the right time. You got to open it at the right time. And it's going to be that much better. You know that when you see kids that get everything they want when they want it. And then guess what? The surprise is no good anymore, you know? Okay, I got that. Yay, Christmas. All right, well, I get that all throughout the year. It's not special anymore. The worst is when we're impatient in ministry. I don't know if it's the worst, okay, but I did. I, sometimes I get impatient in ministry. My first mission field was I went over to Korea, and I went to an island and I spent a year on that island, but, but I went there, and there were 6,000 residents. Now, I was very close to North Korea. I could see North Korea from my island. So there were 3,000 of the residents were soldiers, and 3,000 were inhabitants of the island, actual born and raised there. And I figured, as I read through the book of Acts, and I said, Peter preached this sermon, and in, three, in, in one day, 3,000 people were baptized. This is only going to take me two days. Come on. I was on fire. 
I was so on fire, and I knew that the Lord was going to do something mighty, and I was going to preach, and all those people were going to be baptized in two days. I knew it. I went there in August, and it didn't happen. Actually, people slammed doors in our faces. I said, what? Is it, is it my fault? Am I, is the Spirit not working through me? Did, did the Spirit tell me wrong that I'm supposed to be here? And I started realizing my time is not always the same as God's time. And the challenge is my time is not the same as somebody else's time either. If you read what patriarchs and prophets said about, about, um, about Moses in this time when he buries this body, it says they were not yet prepared for freedom. So it's not just that he was ready. They had to be ready. You know, coming out of the seminary, and you guys know this, you've seen young pastors before. Coming out of the seminary, we have lots of ideas. You know, our, our professors, from their many years of experience, try to give us all of that and say, do this in your first year of ministry. When it took them 10 years of ministry, in a, and they say, just do this. Here's, this is what happened in my ministry. And so we go out, and we go to our first church, and we're like, this is what we're going to do. And the church members are like, yes, let's do it all. Does that happen? <laughs> and so the church members become frustrated with the pastor because he's trying to shove stuff down their throat. And the pastor becomes frustrated with his church members because he feels that, that they're not ready to change and they're not filled with the Spirit because we haven't understood time. Patience. It will come. If we are all led by the Spirit, it will come. There's a, an unknown quote. I could not find the source of this. But it says this, the difference between a home run and a strikeout is timing. You're doing the same thing. You just got to time it right. It's the difference. It's all the same act. But the difference between a home run and a strikeout is timing. Now, if you read what happens to Moses from the New Testament in Hebrews. Stick with me three more minutes, maybe four. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says this. Verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God, rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as a greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover in the sprinkling of blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, 
the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when Egyptians tried so, they were drowned. Do you notice it never mentions the Egyptian that dies? By faith, he killed an Egyptian and buried him in the sand. It's not part of the text. But Moses, the hero of faith, the central figure of three key religions, is praised because he had faith in Jesus Christ. It says there, it says of Christ, even though he's pre-Christ. My first message to you was, don't be impatient. And it's hard not to be. Our society, with our internet and our devices and, and fast food and you know, our streaming, and you know, we don't even have to go out and rent a video anymore. It's right there. I mean, everything is so fast. It's almost impossible not to be impatient. But my first message to you is be patient. You will be happier if you do this. My second one, and maybe even more importantly, because we've all been impatient, is this one. The story of Moses was not the end. His story does not end with him killing an Egyptian. If you were honest, and I'm not asking, many of us, if I asked you, how many of you joined in physical intimacy before you made that covenant? Many of us might have to raise hands. If you have done something before you believe the will of the Lord, the right timing, many of us have made that mistake. We might even say, I might have gotten into the wrong covenant because I was so rash. But that's not the end of the story. God is a forgiving one, and he's not just forgiving, he restores that is the power of the gospel. It doesn't matter. Now, he says don't be impatient because there will be pain on the way. But guess what? The gospel, it says where sin abounds, what? Grace abounds more. I will restore you. And Moses is known for restoration and deliverance. He's not known for this act. Now, if you have killed somebody and buried them in sand, it is a bad thing. But I, I don't know. I don't want to assume. I'm thinking that most of us haven't done that. Yet many of us have lived with years of guilt because we have not understand. We have not understood that, that God wants to restore and sure, you have a past. Everybody has a past. But he says, that's not the end. And your story will be like this. And Moses is only known for his deliverance because of the great forgiveness and restoration that is found in Jesus Christ.